At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we're turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever's keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did. Send me. We come to a a very well-known passage here in Isaiah 6, which we typically think of when considering the holiness of God. And we will consider that God is holy this morning. We will see what Isaiah encountered, but it's not just God's character that we want to consider this morning. Because over the course of these few weeks in the Send Me series, we have the opportunity to consider the call of God. Because throughout the pages of Scripture, God is in a habit of calling and sending. From Moses to Matthew, from Jonah to John, we have people who have a relationship with God that he calls and he deploys, that he uses. And so we do want to discover who God is, and we ultimately want to discover what does God have for us to do. And so may this series in Isaiah 6, may even our pressing into a heart for the nations, help us. Help us to grow in courage and confidence and know the continued movement of the Holy One that we have just heard about on His throne. Now, I had a front row seat to observing the call of God to global missions in the life of a very dear friend. Her name is Jenny. And Jenny was part of my church in Ohio. We were in a small group together. And Jenny had been to Russia on a mission trip. If I remember correctly, it was in high school that she first went. And there was a seed that was planted in her mind and her heart as she went on that mission trip. And as Jenny grew and matured, so did the seed. It, it grew and, and it kept coming up in her mind and And there came a point at which she realized God is calling me to be on mission with him vocationally. And so I had the opportunity to observe, to help, to pray for her as she uh, both was discipled and then she was developed and and all the things that, that needed to be done and then eventually as she deployed. And over the last more than a decade, Allie and I have had the opportunity to support her and to be part of her ministry. And I don't just mean money. But when she's uh, here in the States, she'll stay in our home. And when, when she needs to process something with her, she's single. And so uh, we, we spent hours on FaceTime with her over, over these years. And, and um, one of the most joy-filled experiences was in 2014 when we got to go on the field. And we, we spent 11 days with her. And we saw the people that she serves. And we fell in love with the church there. And I have appreciated, as I've observed Jenny for for these years, that uh, she has such a heart for God, confidence in who God is, and clarity about what God has asked her to do. And that's why she she ended up leaving the the U.S. to go live there. And in God's providence, uh, he already had, uh, she had planned on coming back to the States to to study grad school this fall. And so she came back earlier this month and she'll actually be in our home on Wednesday. We get to to host her and and spend some time talking to her. And I wonder if like Jenny, you have experienced this before, 
Have you ever felt such strong prompting of the Spirit that this is what I'm supposed to do? This is where I'm supposed to go because Isaiah did. Isaiah did. And, and today, as we work through Isaiah 6, we're going to jump around to some different verses here. We're going to see how God's glory compels us to go. And so let's just jump right into our text, starting in verse 1. We have this very interesting phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. Do you know much about King Uzziah? I had to do a little reading up. Let me tell you about King Uzziah. He reigned for 52 years over Israel. He ascended the throne at age 16. Anybody ready for, <laughs> for that at age 16? Not me. He became king at age 16, and, and he had a good start to his reign. He, he did what was honorable to the Lord, and the Lord prospered him. Unfortunately, that did not continue. Eventually, his pride grew. His arrogance grew. And 2 Chronicles, 20, uh, 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that so great was his pride that one day he's at the pinnacle of his power and he goes into the temple and he himself offers incense. Now, if you, if you pay attention to God's commands, it was the priests who were allowed to offer incense. It was not the king. That was not, not the role of the king. The king worshipped, but the king did not participate in an activity like that. And so the, the priests came in and they rebuked him they were reminding him, this is what God has said to do. And, and king, you've got to get out of here. You can't do this. And in his anger at being rebuked by the priests, as he stood there, his forehead grew out with leprosy. And he was leprous until the time of his death. So imagine... The context of this, this, this little phrase that really is almost meaningless to us in the year that King Uzziah died, we think it's just like a date. Imagine, now that you know a bit of the backstory, as Isaiah is, re, is writing about this vision that he has of God, he has in his mind a very long reign of a king that ends because of irreverence for God. And contrasted here, as we work through this text, we have a disobedient king with a divine king. And so he's describing what he sees in this vision. He says, I see, I saw the Lord on a throne high and lifted up. This idea of prominence and authority and honor and position, that there is no one higher than God on his throne. Isaiah notices the, he could have written about a lot of things, but he noticed the, the train of his robe. So apparently God was in royal robes. And he talks about the, the hem of his robe completely fills the temple. Now, the, the temple is the center of worship. It's center of life for the Jews. It's where God's presence was manifested. It's where they were to come and to worship and to seek God and, and spend time with him. And so it's appropriate for Isaiah to behold God's goodness, his glory, his greatness in the temple. But we don't know. Was, this, was he having a vision of the, the physical um, temple there in Jerusalem that Solomon had built? Was this a temple in, in heaven that he was picturing God on the throne? We don't know. What his, we, we don't know all of that. But, but I think it is interesting that, that he talks about the, if just the, the hem already fills up the room. I mean, it was not a small room. If we're talking about the one in, in Solomon's time, just the, the rooms, not the whole temple complex, 90 feet long. 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall. I mean, it's just the, like the hem 
of a piece of clothing, completely filling this up. Huge. Solomon says in 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And he continues. He sees seraphim, these, these interesting heavenly creatures that are around the throne and flying over it. And we don't know any more about seraphim than what, what is recorded here. This is the only time we have a little insight into them. But apparently they have wings. They have activity. With two sets of their wings, they're covering parts of their body. They're covering themselves, probably a a sign of humility before the Holy One. And then in service to God, with the other set of wings, they're flying, and they're flying around the throne, and there's this call and response activity that's happening. As they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This back and forth, calling to each other. We don't know how many seraphim. We don't know anything else except that they were calling and responding. And Isaiah feels the weight of what's happening in the room. So powerful is this call and response. So magnificent is God's glory that he describes the foundations shaking. The very, the very foundations of the temple in his vision are shaking under the weight of God's glory. It's like an earthquake. And it's filled with smoke. He comments about that, that it's just filled with smoke, which, friends, might be the very same smoke that Isaiah's ancestors saw for many, many years as they followed God. They followed the smoke throughout the Sinai Desert. I mean, that's mind-blowing. You hear about these stories, and Isaiah is seeing this smoke in this vision. And it also reminds me, the smoke, the shaking, this, this, this power, reminds me of Exodus 19, which I'll, I'll read just a little bit, but just a reminder, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. So this is the Exodus. They've crossed the Red Sea. God has provided for them. And then he calls them to Mount Sinai because he wants to communicate th- something to them, his law, right? And so Moses in Exodus 19 is bringing the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, which is shrouded in smoke because God had descended in fire. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And there's thunder and there's lightning. And Moses is speaking to God and God is answering him in thunder. Like, how crazy is that? That's what this this vision reminds me of, is the power of God when he shows up. Now, we have to remember that as a devout Jew, Isaiah would have been to temple many times. He longed, he would have longed to be with God in in his presence, though he wasn't a priest, so he wasn't in the inner sanctuary. He wasn't the one performing the, the incense and the different responsibilities. He was a prophet, but he would have longed to be with God in the place where God's presence was. And we have no indication, there's nothing else in scripture that tells us that Isaiah had another experience like this. We have this picture that he experienced And it proverbially knocked his socks off. He was just astounded and awe and shocked. And Tim Keller remarked in a sermon on this passage that as, like any religious person going to temple, the last person Isaiah expected to see or encounter that day was God himself. Have you ever had the opportunity to stand in the presence of someone great? 
or maybe a place that is great. And I'll use it in the truest sense of, its, uh, of the definition, awesome, this awe-inspiring place. Have you ever experienced that before? Tell you a little story. 15 years ago, I was with some friends in Washington, D.C. We had a mutual college acquaintance who worked at the White House. And so before our trip, our friend helped us get the required permission and access to be able to visit. How many, uh, show of hands, how many have, have seen the blue room and the red room and the state dining room? How many have been on the tour before? Yeah, a handful of you. It's, it's, it's impressive. That was not this tour, though. When you have a tour with a White House staffer, you get to go to some places that, that aren't on the public tour. And so our tour that evening was a tour of the West Wing, the Rose Garden, and the adjacent executive office building. And I have a couple pictures that I'll put up so that you can see them. We were only allowed to take pictures of the outside. And you can see on the left is the, the main entrance of the West Wing with the seal of the president above it. And then the other picture is a picture of adjacent to the, the Rose Garden. You can see the cherry blossom tree there. But as I understand it, every day the president walks from his residence outside along this colonnade. And at the end of that colonnade on the right is a round-ish room called the Oval Office. And it was quite astounding to walk through the halls of the West Wing to recognize the, 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 the power that the... I mean, it's just so, such an important thing. And not to mention, you've also seen pictures and video of, of these spaces. But what the truly impressive and amazing and, 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 to be honest, overwhelming moment was when we arrived to the Oval Office. And President Bush was away at Camp David at the time. Uh, so that evening, it was quiet. It was unoccupied, but it was all lit up. They must keep the lights on for peons like us that, that come along for a tour. And we, weren't allow, we were not allowed in to walk around. Uh, we could step up to the doorway. And if I had to be honest with you, I did move my toes over the line just a little bit. <laughs> Secret Service didn't take me out. And I was overcome at how big, I mean, both the size of the room and also the significance. I mean, if you want to, if you want to have a, a meeting and you want to demonstrate the, the power that you have, have it in the Oval Office. <laughs> you can't help but feel it when you step in and look into it. But in no way does this Oval Room compare to what Isaiah saw in his vision. It's just a dumb, ovalish room with plaster compared to what Isaiah beheld in his vision of God on his throne. Now, you and I are not in the practice of going to temple often. I'm, I'm guessing that. But a lot of you are in the practice of coming regularly to worship at a church at Woodside. And um, I wonder... have. I'm guessing you're not going to have the, the experience of the shaking and the smoke and the, and the throne room of heaven when you come at a place like this. But the point is, Isaiah came to worship and he, and he had an encounter with the living God. That's the point. He was overcome. He was overwhelmed with the reality of God. And I wonder, have you been overwhelmed? Have you had an experience with the living God in, in a worship gathering? A lot of people come and they listen and they follow along and they, 
say the words on the screen and they have chit-chat with people. That, that's good, but I don't, want, I don't want us to miss out the fact that our hearts, our souls long for an experience with the one who made us. So is your heart, is your mind, is your soul ready for that when you come here? Because let me remind you, friends, something special happens when God's people gather. Jesus said, if just two or three are together in my name, I'm going to be there. The book of Acts is full of examples of the church being physically and spiritually gathered together and some pretty amazing things happened. God's spirit was poured out upon them. And I wonder, when is the last time that you had an encounter, an experience with the living God, whether it was in a worship gathering like this, whether it was in a time when you have just sat before Scripture and let Scripture read you, not just you reading Scripture, but really letting Scripture read your soul. I hope you have time for lengthy prayer at some point to just hear, to wait on God. What are you prompting me? What do I know about you? What do you want me to do? I love nature. It really stirs my affection for God. So maybe you have just had your soul stirred before when you've been out in nature and you've beheld his handiwork. I'm reminded here in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah went from ritual to real. It got real. No longer a religious creed, but right clarity about God and who he is. Friends, don't, don't just show up. Don't just try to keep God in a little box. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be controlled. Can't be managed. Behold him for who he is, as we see here in the text. Because one of the great blessings of Scripture is that we don't just hear stories about God, information. We actually know who God is. He tells us about himself. If you think about uh, Moses' interaction on Mount Sinai the first time before the Exodus, he was on Mount Sinai, and, and God spoke to him out of this bush that was on fire but wouldn't burn up. And we learned God's name. He told us his name. I am that I am. Yahweh, Jehovah, translated. So we learned God's name. We learned that God is a, a promise-making God, a promise-keeping God. Think of the promises that he made to Abraham. We know from the pages of Scripture that God is creator of life. He is the sustainer of life. We know that he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Don't the Psalms just sing constantly of the steadfast love of the Lord for his people? And then we come to a passage like this, and we're reminded of his majesty, his kingship on the throne, his eminence. He's so huge. Transcendence, that's not a word we use often, but he's so beyond. And his holiness. I'll bet you even heard Holy, 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 when Moses read that in Luganda. Do you hear that? The, the repetition of three, recognizable even in another language. This, this word repeated three times is this idea of supremacy and importance and completeness when it's repeated three times. 
What comes to mind when you think of God and His holiness? You know, for most of us, it's probably um, moral purity, right? It's right living, no sin. It's just it's moral purity. And that's, that is absolutely true of God. It's not less than this, but there is more to His holiness than just that. Holiness is the idea of being separate, of being set apart for something sacred, other even. God is certainly other than his creation. We know him to be perfect and pure. He's providential. He's patient. He provides. All these things that are, that are true of God and not true of us. Just this week, a friend sent me a, a helpful video. We were talking about God's holiness, and he, and he followed up with this video, and I want to just play a clip of it. It's from the Bible Project, which puts out some fantastic biblical resources, and so just watch this with me on God's holiness. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice, and for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person, so God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah. He didn't break out with leprosy. <laughs> fell, fell dead. Friends, let's see God's holiness. Love how they described it. So dangerous, but so good. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And in Leviticus 11, for I am the Lord your God, he says, consecrate yourselves, therefore be holy, for I am holy. See his holiness, behold his glory. Are you thankful for it? I am. I am thankful for the reality of God's otherness. 
because I know my own experience too well. I know the patterns that I regularly fall into. And so I am so grateful that God does not fall into that, that he is other. I want to follow a God like that, not one who is not holy. And you may be wondering, what does God's holiness have to do with missions and a heart for the nations? Hang on, we'll get there. I'm glad you asked. But, but drink in God's character for a moment. Don't jump over it too quick. Specifically, his holiness, his otherness, his dangerous goodness. Do you have a correct picture of God's holiness in your mind? Is it a comfort to you? Or do you go to the, the place that many of us do where you think only about God's holiness in the context of wrath? This week I, I read um, about George MacDonald, who was a Scottish writer and, and preacher in the 1800s, and he uh, preached a sermon on Hebrews 12.29 where God is described as a consuming fire. And in that sermon, he shared, it's a little bit old language here, so, so hear me out. He shared that love loves unto purity. Love loves unto purity. This idea that God loves us to the extent that he works to make us pure. That's a beautiful concept that we see in the cross. Like God is holy, and just like in that video, we saw something gets too close to the sun and it's obliterated. So is God's consuming fire of holiness and righteousness. However, don't feel discouraged at this because God loves you unto purity. He, he actually leaned toward you as John 3.16 tells us. He so loved the world. He has moved toward you in Jesus to make you righteous. He has taken the steps to burn away your sin in impurity. He has imparted to you a new heart and the righteousness of Christ for those who put their faith and trust in the work of Jesus. That is God's love unto purity. And so can you see that God's holiness is actually for your good and for your salvation as his love and his purity moved you to a place of repentance. I greatly wish that I could go through every verse of chapter 6, and I wish I could have played the rest of the video because it's fantastic. However, that is Pastor Jacob's delight next Sunday, and so I'm going to let him do that. But for the rest of our time here, considering the fact that in light of God's glory, Isaiah beheld God's glory, his holiness. He was moved by it, transformed by it. And he then responded to it. And in verse 8, we hear a question being asked by God. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, when God asks a question, we know from Jesus and all his teaching, he already knows the answer, right? He knows why he's asking, and actually he also knows to whom he's asking. How wonderful and terrible to have a direct question asked of you from the one, the Holy One on the throne. And God is looking, in this question, he's looking for someone willing, someone he can send. 
And again, we'll get into the transformation that Isaiah experienced and this renewal that he experienced next week as we continue. But Isaiah had connection to God, right? He had a relationship to him. He certainly beheld God's character in that moment, and so that gave him confidence to respond. Here I am, send me. But you have to remember, Isaiah didn't actually know what he was fully getting himself into. We have the benefit of reading the rest of Isaiah 6 to actually read what God says about his assignment. And spoiler alert, it's a long, hard road. Israel was very hard-hearted and stubborn and rebellious and disobedient. They backed away from the covenant that God had with them. But Isaiah didn't know that at the time. All he knew was, I'm so moved by God. I behold him for who he is, and I have confidence in him, and he's calling me to this, so here we go. Here I am, send me. Isaiah is so eager. He's just empowered to respond to the call of God and confident in him, despite not knowing what was coming. Now, this is kind of a silly illustration, but this trying to think of ways to to make it connect for us. It reminds me of this last January. Our family went to Disney World. It was the first time that we'd gotten to take our kids with us to Disney. And uh, we we entered the park on our Magic Kingdom day. And uh, we, we passed by this stunning, magical castle. And the kids, it was so magical and great, except I'm looking at the crowds like, are you kidding me? <laughs> the park just opened, and there were already like swarms of people. And when we actually, we, we decided, let's go to one of the busy rides. So we went to Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, great way to start at Magic Kingdom. And so as we're in line, we're starting to talk about, okay, who's going to ride with whom? And, and how are we going to break this up? Now, it reminds me of Audrey, my daughter, six and a half at the time. And Audrey's never been on a roller coaster. She's never been on a ride before. She doesn't know anything about it except that she's in this magical place. She's with her family. She's with her grandparents, her cousins, my sister and her husband. And so we're all there together. We're going to experience this together. And I know this because I know Audrey. I can tell that she is both excited and nervous. She's excited and nervous and she's ready for it. But she runs over and she grabs my hand. And she says, I'm going to ride this one with daddy. I'm her big daddy, she calls me. And I was thrilled that she came and held my hand and melt, melt, melt. Just like, God willing, someday I will walk her down an aisle holding her hand and melt, melt, melt even more. I'm a softie. I'm a total softie. But she said, you know what? I, I don't know what to expect. I've never done something like this, but I know my big daddy. I'm going to sit with him. I, I, he's told me he's ridden this ride when he was a little kid. So it's going to be okay. As long as I'm with him, let's go. She was so confident in my presence. She was confident that I was going to take care of her. And in a very, very small way, this demonstrated a bit of the Isaiah, here am I, send me experience. The posture of Isaiah. Now, you and I don't live Disney World lives. We face a lot more fears and challenges. But praise God that we're with our big daddy, the biggest that there ever is. 
And the Abba, as even Jesus called him, right? We're with him. And he is consistent and powerful and sovereign. And we learn about his heart. We learn about his character. And so just like Isaiah was confident in his character, he was confident in what it was God, God was calling him into, we also can be confident in that. And so I wonder, have you responded in whatever way it looks like to you? Here am I, God, send me. I don't know what that looks like to you. I will tell you, it's not a one and done thing. It's not just a, I mean, at one time, Jenny said, here am I, send me, and off she goes to Russia. But we all know that there's this daily reality to it. Constant. What does a here I am prayer look for you? I have a mentor who begins his day every day, most humble man I've ever met. He begins his day every day with the prayer, here I am, Lord. What do you have for me today? What does that prayer look like for you how would that even change the way that you view God, the way that you view yourself, the way that you view the world, the circumstances around you? Isaiah is so available. He says, God, here I am. Send me. I don't know what, what you expect, but I know you. So put me in the game, coach. And I'm reminded as I read Isaiah 6, I'm reminded of what Jesus had in mind for his followers. I'll put it up on the screen, but in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is teaching what citizens of the kingdom are to look like, how they're to live. Jesus knows about the darkness much more than we do. He's really clued in to the spiritual powers of oppression and darkness. And yet, the whole plan is for us to live this out. He goes to heaven after his death, burial, resurrection. He sends us his presence, the spirit of the living God. And this is the plan. <laughs> there is no plan B. It's for us to live before the world, to live as lights in the world, just like we will get there to a beautiful summer's evening where the bugs are attracted to any light that is around us. That's how we're to live before a watching world. And the light is the gospel message that illuminates hearts and minds, that calls people from darkness to light. Jesus is in this for discipleship and life change. We're not just talking about being kind, although Jesus was kind to people. That's a good, that's a good start, but we're not just in it for kindness. We're not just in it for let's do some good deeds. Although Jesus also says that we'll be known by our love and by our good deeds. But no, he's in it for life change. I'll borrow from a commentary because I felt like it was so well said. In this, there is a demand to be different and to act differently, to be right with God and to act the way God demands by following Jesus in countercultural 
directions. And what is that direction? What is that goal? It's to show the world the glory of God. It's to show it. Because once we have a right picture of God, of his holiness, of his glory, of his character, then the right response of Isaiah and disciples of Jesus like us today is to turn and to demonstrate God's world, God's glory to the world. Which I don't know if you've ever walked in the family entrance, but on the wall, that's why we exist as a church, to glorify God by making disciples. We're not in it to sit in a worship service and hear some words and sing some songs. We're in it for life change, for discipleship. And we want to proclaim God's glory in a gathering like this. We want to proclaim God's glory in our lives to show and tell the character, the goodness of God and how he's changed us and and to invite people into that kind of a life. So it's not a coincidence, as we finish up here today, it's not a coincidence that we're in Isaiah 6. While we call attention to uh, the, the desire and heart of our church to reach the nations, it's not a new strategy. It's what we've been up to for decades. We've always had a heart for, for missions and for the unreached. And so the invitation here is two, uh, actually threefold. First of all, we want to develop and equip ordinary people. No cape flapping in the wind, superstar, need apply. <laughs> Please go to another place. We want ordinary people who say, I want to be discipled. I just want to discern. I'm not signing up to go to a particular place or do a particular thing. I just want to be discipled. And what would it look like to be developed and and potentially be deployed? We've talked about this in the past. That's called our Global 100. And we have a, a number of booklets like this, short booklets back on our Connect desk which is the process of of discipleship. We're trying to recruit 100 people who would say, I want to go through this process and consider what God may be inviting me to step into. That's our global 100. So that's an invitation for you to, to personally consider or maybe to pray along with us that God raises up. I would pray even more than 100. The second invitation is our global expansion campaign, which is this booklet that many of you have with your bulletin. Our desire is to continue to grow in our generosity, to be able to to take on some additional global partners. Over the years, if you've been around here for a while, we've talked about our our partners in India and Thailand, orphanages and in Liberia. But as you read through the pages of this, there are some other ones that we feel prompted and, and burdened to take on. And so our goal is $250,000 in the next three weeks. Seed money for a global expansion campaign. And I'll be honest, this is above and beyond. Allie and I are praying about above and beyond giving, beyond what we regular, regularly give to Farmington Hills so that we can serve regions of the world where the gospel is less known. And so I'm going to invite you. I'm going to ask you, take this home. Don't let this just end up in a recycling bin. Stick this in your Bible or 
at the breakfast table or whatever and, and spend some time reading through the opportunities that we have, uh, especially in Ghana and in Nepal and the needs that are there and the opportunities that are before us. And would you consider, would you pray about above and beyond giving in the next three weeks so that we can help show God's glory? And then the third invitation is a bit closer to home and it's to live with intention as a missionary wherever God has placed you. I was commenting with the, the worship and the tech team. We prayed before the service. And I said, you know, I'm struck that, that a lot of the people that you interact with during the week are never going to darken the door of Woodside. They're not going to hear me preach or hear Natalie lead worship. They're not going to be experiencing the life of the church unless the Spirit works in their hearts. And I pray that he does. But, but the truth is he has deployed his followers to go into the mission field where I, I can't reach. Pastor Jacob and I can't get to these places, but you can. You're there. You may not really like your job right now, but for this moment right now, God has placed you there on purpose. God also, I believe, supernaturally determined your zip code and the neighbor that you would live next to, the gym that you would work out at. And instead of hurrying and pumping your irons and trying to get home, maybe it just means like slow down a little bit, have a conversation with people. Engage the barista that you see multiple times a week. But see the spaces where God has placed you as opportunities for you to say, here am I. Would you use me, God? And so, Heavenly Father, the High and the Holy One that we have just learned about and, and been reminded of and worshipped, Here we are. Church, I want to invite you. Just reach out your hand. A little awkward, but would you do that? Just put out your hand in front of you. Here we are, Lord. Here we are. We're your people. We know who you are. We're learning more and more every day who you are. And we, we want to know what you're calling us into and then to give us the courage to actually do that. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to, to have that confidence and that clarity and that courage to experience the glory in going, the glory in showing the world who you are and what's, what's been done in our lives? We give ourselves over to you because you are worthy. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.